0: From throughout this congregation, will transform 30 Sanford Lane into a bona fide dig site, complete with an active ongoing excavation, an artifact library, an interpretation center, and a couple of site directors. One of our directors, Dr. Doug Clark, is a genuine archaeologist who spends about six months each year in a place called Tel Heshbon in Jordan, excavating the ruins of a capital city that was ruled over by Sion, the king of the Amorites at the time of Moses. Dr. Clark makes his permanent home just down the road in Discovery Bay. He'll be with us on Monday and for the closing program next week on Saturday evening. Our other site director, is a wannabe archaeologist by the name of Dr. Diggory, played by John Gatchett. He's our head elder here. Dr. Diggory is a great pretender. He's a poser. But that's okay because his real job is to help the kids have fun and learn some cool stuff during the week of vacation Bible school. And our theme this year, as you know, is digging for truth. And it's right down my alley because I have always enjoyed digging in the dirt and playing in the dirt piles. And it's just a lot of fun. Although I think it would have been way more fun if we could have used, you know, excavators and backhoes instead of trowels and toothbrushes. But it's still good. And we're going to have fun. And, of course, all the digging and the finding of artifacts and idols and pottery shards and coins is just a setup for the kids to hear some genuine stories of Jesus from the Bible. That's the whole point. And you never know what might happen. Twenty years from now, there just might be someone who says of that her, his, or her serious quest for Jesus began at, an ex, at a vacation Bible school uh, experience called "Digging for Truth." So please be praying for the young minds that they will be open to discover Jesus and how much He loves them. There is truly nothing better than for a young person to, to, to discover the joy of knowing Jesus and that God loves them. It just doesn't get better than that. And since we're doing the archaeology theme next week, I decided to begin this message by showing you some of the cool finds that have been made over the past 12 months in the field of biblical archaeology. Now, archaeology is the study of human history and prehistory done by digging up physical remains of a culture and analyzing the artifacts. Biblical archaeology is the excavation and study of artifacts directly related to stories or people or places mentioned in the Bible or about the development of scripture itself, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Every single year, significant discoveries are made that continue to build confidence in the truth of Scripture. You might hear people who, who say they are smart, knowledgeable people, you might hear them say things like, oh, you know, the Bible's just a collection of myths. The Bible can't be trusted. The Bible's not really an accurate historical account of history, But people who say those kind of things or believe them are just getting farther and farther out there on the limb of incredulity. Because discoveries in the field of archaeology are happening all the time. And they are confirming and validating and corroborating the Bible. They are not diminishing the Bible. Because of archaeology, our confidence in the veracity of Scripture and its historical reliability is greater today than ever before. So here are just a few of uh, the things that happened in 2020. Even though it was the year of COVID and most of the dig sites were on lockdown, there were still some amazing discoveries made during these past 12 months. Here is a signet ring. signet rings were used to seal royal documents and decrees. This was how executive orders were done in Bible times. You would press this royal ring into the wax that sealed the document. This ring has an image of a roaring lion and an inscription that says in Hebrew, belonging to Shema, the servant of Jeroboam. Jeroboam the second, ruled in Israel in the 8th century B.C. No artifact belonging to Jeroboam has ever been found before. And then, just last year, they authenticated this ring. This 2,700-year-old artifact affirms the historicity of King Jeroboam II, son of Joash, as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 13, and verse 13. Imagine finding this. Imagine digging it up. It would be like finding the pen that Thomas Jefferson used to sign the Louisiana Purchase with his name on it. Wouldn't that be cool? Here's another one. This is the ruins of a synagogue found at a place called Beth Shemesh that dates to the first century. Beth Shemesh is 18 miles due west of Jerusalem. It's interesting how they found this. Road crews were widening a highway when the bulldozer unearthed artifacts dating to the time of Solomon's temple. So immediately the archaeologists were called in. The highway had to be rerouted. And when they were excavating the new roadbed for the rerouted highway, they stumbled on this one an entire synagogue dating from the days of Jesus before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Jesus may have taught here. How cool is that? And Beth Shemesh is important because it's a town mentioned in the Bible in connection with the Philistines returning the Ark of the Covenant to the Israelites after they'd captured it in battle. Here's something that's hardly even noticeable, just a tiny little treasure. But it's had a huge impact in the scholarly world. This is a fragment of what once was a large earthen jug that held wine. And on this fragment, there is a Hebrew inscription that reads, Belonging to Ben Ayao, with its classic Y. A-U ending at the end of the name, which means, which identifies the owner as a follower of Yahweh. Okay, that's what that means. Which means there were Israelite people living in the city where this was found. Abel Beth in into 10th century BC. Now, Abel Beth Maka is about 20 miles due north of the Sea of Galilee. Secular scholars have claimed for years, for decades, there were no Jews living in this area into 10th century BC. It's impossible, they said, even though 2 Samuel chapter 20 verse 19 says that the village of Abel Beth Maka was a mother in Israel in the days of King David. No, can't be, they said. The Bible is mistaken. We know The Israelites abandoned this area long before that time. Well, guess what? Just last year, some sharp-eyed archaeologists spotted this tiny detail on a broken pot fragment in the dig site at Abel Beth Maka, which proves that the Bible was not mistaken after all. And all those Bible critics had to retract their proud opinions. And here's a photo of, of the actual discovery taken the day archeologists unearthed three pillar capitals. A capital is the architectural object at the top of a column or, or a pillar, right? These were found in the remains of a palatial residence unearthed just south of the old, of the city the old city of Jerusalem last year and its design is known to have originated in the kingdom of Judah. They were able to determine the residence was built sometime after the Assyrian siege and before Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem these stunning capitals and the very upscale palatial residence in which they were discovered verify the wealth of King Hezekiah and some of the people in Judah during the time mentioned in Second Kings 20 and in the prophecies of Amos, particularly chapter 4, where Amos is really down on some of the wealthy people in Judah because they were oppressing the poor. So these are just a few of of the things archaeologists have given us this past year. Now let me tell you another story. Two and a half years ago, Colette and I traveled to the Bible lands with a group of pastors from our conference. Michael and Elizabeth, James and Sandy, and Tim and Marty were also along on that trip. We saw... Some amazing archaeological sites that have been uncovered only in the last couple of decades, so they are quite recent. For instance, the Palace of Annas, which was found only a few years ago underneath an eight-story office building in Old Jerusalem. And believe it or not, they excavated down under that office building, they poured concrete piers, they snaked huge steel beams into place to carry the weight of that entire office building, and then they opened up an archaeological dig site under the building, and they found the whole residence of Annas, the high priest who was one of the Jewish leaders who condemned Jesus to death, including his courtyard. Almost certainly the courtyard where Peter stood warming his hands around a fire when he was accused of being a follower of Jesus, and he denied it, and Jesus looked at him, and he went out and cried. When you see things like that, it's, it's very moving. At least it was for me. And here's the thing. There's just so much of it over there, and more is being found all the time. I mean, the land over there has been occupied for millennia. And almost anywhere you go, if you begin to dig, you stand a good chance of finding stuff that's been lost for centuries or even millennia. And because of that, it's very difficult to build there. Because if you do run into artifacts when you're excavating for your building's foundations, the law requires that you immediately stop digging. You just shut down your bulldozers and you contact the Department of Antiquities and they come out and they red tag your project and they force you to stop until the site can be properly studied and, and cataloged. And sometimes that takes years, even decades, which costs builders a lot of money. I mean, you think we've got Environmental red tape over here? Well, they got it in spades over there. So people do one of two things when they're building and they uncover antiquities. They either call the authorities like they are supposed to do or they excavate at night and they do it fast and they truck the fill to some undisclosed site and dump it and rebury it and hope nobody finds out which ruins the possibility of learning anything about the site where it was found so in israel today there are places where archaeologists are working to to recover artifacts from these illegal dump piles from modern modern building projects that are flying under the radar And we visited one of those sites and we got to work there for a few hours sifting through rubble and finding little bits and pieces of ancient pottery and and jewelry and bones and such. They don't call those dig sites, they call them sifting sites. But what gets turned up in those sites really isn't very significant because none of it has any context anymore. It's all been taken away from the place where it was originally deposited and mixed up with all kinds of other stuff, so it's hard to date, and it's impossible to reconstruct the original setting. So it's not very valuable. And that's why they, like, they let tourists and amateurs like us sift through it and see what we can find. And we did that for a few hours. But when a builder follows the law and contacts the antiquities people, sometimes extraordinary discoveries are made. I want to tell you about one of those. On the day our group was supposed to visit uh, the Masada Fortress, it rained and washed out the road so we couldn't go. And everybody was bummed because they had been looking forward to seeing Masada, you know, where uh, it's a very famous fortress where the, the last of the failed Jewish revolutionaries threw themselves off the edge of a cliff in a suicide pact rather than to be captured by the Romans in AD 73. Well, little did we know that the consolation prize would become one of the highlights of the whole trip. Since we couldn't go to Masada, we traveled north to Mount Arbel, which overlooks the whole northern end of the Sea of Galilee. What you are looking at in this hazy photograph is the place where Jesus of Nazareth spent the best years of his life. This was his little pastoral district, as it were, and from here he forever changed the world. In the center of the picture, just to the right of the highway, is the shore of the lake where he often walked and where he called his first disciples. You can see some boats out there on the lake. They are tour boats. In the days of Jesus, they would have been fishing boats. In the mid-distance, on the left-hand side, just past the sharp bend in the shoreline where the ground rises away from the lake, is the place where Jesus gave his famous Sermon on the Mount. And off in the hazy distance, right at the water's edge, is the little village of Capernaum, and up up the hill from that is the village of Chorazin. In both of these towns, synagogues have been excavated, and they are very old, and they are very impressive, but unfortunately, they date only from about the 3rd century A.D., They're built on original foundations, but the stone walls and the tile floors were built over the ruins of the original structures, which were destroyed. So what you see there today aren't the the actual synagogues where Jesus would have taught and worshipped and healed crippled people with withered hands. But in the lower right-hand corner of the picture, if you just walk a few a hundred yards to a little different vantage point so that you can see around the corner, you can look down on a development that is owned by the Catholic Church. Some years back, the Catholic Church decided to build a hotel and convention center here on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they secured all the permits and began to excavate to pour the foundations for their big hotel and guess what happened. They ran into artifacts. So they called the Department of Antiquities and their project was halted and the archaeologists went to work and guess what they found? They discovered a whole village. And it turns out the name of that village that they uncovered was Magdala. Does that name ring a bell for anybody? There was a woman named Mary who hailed from that town. This is her hometown. At some time in the distant past, it had been forever lost to the ages. And then, quite by accident, only because the Catholics wanted to build a big hotel, Magdala was found. But it gets even better, because they uncovered the ruins of a synagogue in Magdala, and it was not a 3rd or 4th century structure that had been built over the ruins of its predecessor like the one in Capernaum. This one was original, dating from the time of Jesus. And you see the mosaic tile floor there in the very bottom center left of the photograph. That's an original floor, exactly as it was uncovered, untouched for 2,000 years. Luke says it was the custom of Jesus to teach in the Galilean synagogues, which means he would have taught in this synagogue, in the village of Magdala, where Mary lived. He would have walked on this floor. And you can can't believe that there were some people in our group that were still bummed that they didn't get to go to Masada and see the suicide pact when we got to see this instead can you imagine that now there's a story that Matthew and Mark and Luke all tell about a synagogue ruler named Jairus whose daughter was dying so he came begging for Jesus to come to his home and heal his daughter but before he get he got there he was interrupted by a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. You remember the story, right? Okay? How she sneaks up to Jesus in the crowd and just touches the hem of his garment because she is unclean on account of her bleeding, so she can't approach him directly. So as Jesus approaches with all the crowd pressing in around him, she gets in her hands and knees. And as he's passing by, she reaches in and touches the hem of his garment while he's on his way to Jairus' house. And Jesus feels the healing power go out from him. And he stops and he turns around and he says, Who touched me? And the woman is trembling in fear at having been found out. But Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. It's just a wonderful story. And it must be an important story because it's told three times in the New Testament. Now, some some Bible scholars say that Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. But there's compelling evidence that indicates he would have been the ruler of the synagogue in Magdala. This synagogue. So... What the Catholics did instead of building their convention center was this. They built a church. It's a very beautiful church. It's simple in design. It's got a very cool pulpit, as you can see. And it's kind of their custom, you know, the Catholics. Whenever there's a really important biblical site, well, they build a church on top of it. Only, this is not really on the site, it's just close by, a couple of hundred feet maybe from where the little village is still being excavated, or at least it was when we were there. And in the lower level of the church, there hangs a large mural-like painting that was commissioned to depict the very instant that unnamed woman of faith reached in among those dirty, sandaled feet and touched the hem of the robe of Jesus so many centuries ago and was instantly healed. Of course, the Catholics also built a gift shop you know, near the excavation site of the village of Magdala. And Colette and I decided that's where we would spend, that's where we would buy our one significant souvenir of the trip. We bought a print of that picture. It was very expensive, but we decided it would be our single splurge, and we bought it, and we brought it home, and we had it framed. And if you're sharp, you recognize that print as the one that hangs on the wall as you leave the sanctuary every day after worship. It comes from the likely place where Jesus performed that very miracle of healing. And that's some archaeology for you to think about this morning. And next week, we will have Destination Dig right here. Our friends from the heart of Jesus' church are surely going to be surprised at what their worship space looks like next Sunday morning, let me tell you. So, in keeping with the theme of digging up valuable things, it seemed like the well-known parable of Jesus that he told about buried treasure would just be appropriate for this morning. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. Chapter 13 stands out in the flow of Matthew's gospel because... It's the first time Jesus makes such an extensive use of parables as a teaching method. The simplest definition of a parable is this, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's what they are. Now, up to chapter 13, Jesus has taught in a fairly straightforward manner. But here in chapter 13, he switches methods and begins telling parables. In fact, seven of them he tells in chapter 13, and he continues to use them all the way to chapter 25. Why does he do this? Probably because he has come to the point in his ministry that he has been rejected by the Jewish leaders. They see him as a threat, and they are looking for ways to silence him, to kill him. So now he begins to teach in a way that his enemies won't be able to use his own words in a court of law against him. And what he wants to convey as he tells these pithy little stories is the nature of the kingdom of heaven. Here's what the kingdom of heaven is like, he says. It's like a man who plants good seed in his field, but the enemy comes and sows weeds. It's like a tiny little mustard seed that grows into the largest plant. It's like yeast mixed in a batch of dough. And then you come to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had. Bought that field. This is one of the shortest stories Jesus ever told, but it's one of the most captivating. I mean, who among us has never fantasized about what it would be like to find some huge hoard of money? Mm, what you might do with that, the, 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 the tingle of excitement that you would feel. I mean, I remember reading... the the life story of a guy named Mel Fisher, who spent 20 long years of his life searching the shallow, warm Caribbean waters off the Florida Keys for a Spanish treasure ship that had reportedly sunk in a hurricane in 1622. People told him, He was nuts. He was chasing an old wives' tale. There would never be any return for the investment that he was making, which basically was his whole life, okay? Every dollar, every waking moment, he invested in finding that foundered galleon. He and his wife and his four children and their spouses. And when he finally found it, he salvaged over 40 tons of gold bullion, 40 tons of gold bullion, and thousands of silver ingots and emeralds, some of which are the finest in the world still today, bucket loads of gold and silver coins. I mean, I saw some of that treasure when we went to Miami to visit Colette's sister, Janine. We drove down to Key West, where it's still on display at the Mel Fisher Museum. You can even touch it. Hidden treasure has a way of captivating people and they and and all these treasure stories have one theme in common okay the treasure hunters spend their whole lives to get the treasure but they do it joyfully because they know how valuable the treasure is and Jesus says this is the way it is with the kingdom of heaven That's the way it is with the kingdom of heaven. It costs everything to secure it. But a person pays that cost with joy when he or she realizes the value of it. How many of you have ever gone in your backyard and started digging for treasure? Anybody? A couple. Not many of us do that around here, you know? Because where we live, the odds of finding something Pretty slim, pretty slim. But in the days of Jesus, people didn't put their wealth in banks because there weren't banks for common people. If you wanted to hide something valuable, you buried it and you didn't tell anybody where it was because if you did, they'd go dig it up, right? It was a secret. So in the story Jesus tells, a man has buried a significant treasure in the ground for whatever reason. I mean, maybe there's political instability. Maybe a new king has just come to the throne. Maybe the country is about to be run over by foreign invaders. So a man buries a chest or or probably, probably more, he buries a pot or a jar of coins and jewels in his field, hoping that once the turmoil subsides, he'll return and retrieve his treasure. But maybe he's captured. Maybe he's deported as as a slave, never to return. Or maybe he's killed. Uh, For whatever reason, the secret of the location of all that wealth perishes with him. Generations pass. Empires change. And the land is appropriated and reappropriated by changing political powers. Eventually, it comes to pass that a certain man is able to secure a lease on a plot of ground from the authorities on condition that he improve it and bring it back to working order. Which means he's got to clear it of all the rocks that have been scattered there over the years by the invading armies in order to make it unfit for cultivation. And this he does. Year by year, gradually transforming, increasing portions of it into farmland. It's hard work. And his ox-drawn plow is frequently caught by the rocks, which then he must carry to the edges of his field. But he's diligent, and he keeps at it. And then one day, the tip of his plow catches something like a rock. But when the oxen stop and he begins to dislodge it from the earth, he sees it's not just another stone, it's some sort of broken pottery. And as he pulls the broken shards, he draws in his breath at what he sees a mass of gold and silver coins. The silver's tarnished black, but the gold is still bright with luster as he wipes away the soil and jewels buckets of them can you imagine the tingle of excitement he will be fabulously wealthy this will radically revolutionize his life there's only one problem the field isn't his so he looks both ways determined that determines that nobody has been watching And fills the hole in. He reburies it. Why? (laughs) So that he can go and buy the field. Because he knows the value of what he has just found in the ground. And he knows that value far exceeds anything he has or could ever hope to acquire in his lifetime. Now, when I was a kid, we used to have a saying that went something like this. Finders keepers, losers weepers, right? And it just so happens that saying is loosely based on a Jewish law that was in effect at the time of Jesus. People sometimes have a problem with Jesus in this story because it seems like Jesus is advocating what what appears to be like unethical behavior here. You know, the guy is going to try to buy the field without full disclosure. It smells like stealing, But that's not the case. Legally, it really was finders keepers. So according to Jewish law, the treasure is his, he found it. But in Jesus' day, the Jewish nation was under the dominion of another political power. Do you remember what that power was? It was the Roman power, that's right. And Roman law on this kind of thing was was ambiguous. So this fellow knows that by rights, he gets to keep what he's found, but just to make sure he's got to buy the field. That's the guarantee. The problem is he doesn't have enough money okay, to make the purchase. And truth be told, it's just a fairly ordinary-looking field. You know, There's nothing special about it, or so it would seem, and the sale price is way too high for just a common plot of ground. He comes in with a a big pile of money to buy this. People may begin to wonder what's going on here, you know. But he has become hooked. He has become obsessed on buying this field because he knows something about it that nobody else knows. In this ordinary-looking, average-appearing field contains something that will forever change his life. So he begins the process of raising capital to make the purchase. He takes inventory of everything of value that belongs to him, and he has a big yard sale. The oxen, the plow, and the farm implements go first, but he's still way short. His neighbors laugh. Hey, say, old farmer Joshua, he's lost all his marbles. Next he sells the house, the family donkey, the chickens, and his wife's prized kitchen pottery. Finally, he sells his wife's dowry coins. He becomes the village laughing stock. But he's not laughing, and he can't be shamed. Why not? Because he knows the value of what he's discovered. In fact, Jesus says this guy's attitude is one of joy. Jesus says, then, in his joy, he went and sold how much? All he had, everything, you know. And eventually he raises all the funds required to buy. And he joyfully goes and signs the papers and acquires the deed of ownership. And he becomes very, very wealthy. Guess who's not laughing anymore? Mm hmm. And what do you think the the new owner of the field does after that? What do you think he does? I know what I would have done. I'd have dug up every last square foot of that field to find the rest of it using my brand new John Deere backhoe. That's what I would have done. Now think about this for a minute. How many people thought that there was treasure hidden in that field? Hmm? Nobody did. Why not? Because it was just a common, ordinary field. There was nothing special about it. People had been passing it by for centuries. It's just a field full of rocks at that. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven here. He's not talking about golden coins. He's talking about spiritual treasure. And here's the principle. Spiritual treasure is always hidden in unexpected places, places that you would never guess, in common, ordinary places, and it takes diligence to find it. That's how the kingdom of heaven works. In the kingdom of the world, uh, the world almost always assesses value based upon appearance, doesn't it? In the kingdom of the world, it's all about image. The world considers you a valuable person if you're good looking, if you're smart, if you're wealthy, if you're polished, if you're educated, if you're articulate, if you're woke. But in the kingdom of God, your value comes from what's hidden on the inside, that what, what's not immediately apparent, it comes from what's put there by Jesus. It comes from things like honesty and integrity and faithfulness and courage and servant heartedness and humility. You remember the story about God telling the prophet Samuel to go and anoint the new king of Israel? And he sends him to Jesse's house and tells him to take the holy oil with him. And he'll show him which one of Jesse's sons is to be the new king. Do you remember that? So Samuel tells Jesse to have all his sons walk before him one by one. And each time one of Jesse's sons walk by, Samuel thinks, Well, that's the one. Surely that's the next king of Israel because every one of those young men were strong, good-looking, confident, cocky, very, very appealing from a physical, outward point of view. But each time God told Samuel, "Mm mm-mm, that's not the one. Man looks on the outside, but God looks where? At the heart, you know. And in the end, God chose David. The smallest, most unlikely of all those brothers. One author who writes about this parable says that one way God hides spiritual treasure in his kingdom is by putting it in ordinary looking people. Hmm. Have you ever noticed how God seems to specialize in using people that the world would consider to be losers to build his kingdom? He does. Maybe that's because the world is always so preoccupied with surface stuff. There's a place where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. This is what he says. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth, but... God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why would God do that? Well, why did he do this? Well, maybe it's so that we would appreciate the gospel. Maybe that's why. God chose the weak, the despised things of the world to nullify the things that are, so that nobody may boast before Him. It's because of Him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. God puts spiritual treasure in ordinary people, and when he does, it's called the church. This place is filled up with pretty flawed people, isn't it? I mean, mostly, right? And pretty ordinary people. And most people today don't consider the church to be anything special at all. You know that. But God has hidden spiritual treasure in his church, which means in you and in the people sitting around you, maybe even in the person sitting beside you. Think about that. Another author, one that many of you have read, says that in this parable, the treasure is the gospel and the field is the Bible. In other words, God has hidden away in his word the treasure of the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of how God saves us. That he is our righteousness and he is our holiness and he has secured our redemption like we just read. Now most people would never guess that. Most people would guess that we've got to measure up. We've got to live a pretty good life. We've got to overcome temptations. And if we do that, we'll get a shot at the kingdom of heaven someday. But then we stumble onto this treasure that says God has already done for us everything we need for heaven and freely gives it to us as a gift. And all we have to do is trust him for that. And when the exquisite value of that discovery begins to dawn on us, as we read his word day by day, it changes our lives completely and fills us with joy. But there's even another way to understand what Jesus is saying here, and that's to realize that He is the treasure. And from the context of Matthew's story here, that might be the best way to think about it that Jesus is the treasure. That's what all the religious leaders just refuse to believe, isn't it? In Jesus' day, most of the people didn't understand who he really was, did they? I mean, it was hidden from them. It wasn't hidden by God. It was hidden by their own unwillingness to get beyond a surface reading of him. Even his own disciples, it took them a long time coming to realize that he was God's Messiah And certainly, the religious leaders considered him much too ordinary, much too lowly to be who he claimed to be. Why was that? Because we, human beings, have this terrible tendency to judge spiritual value based on outward appearance. And Jesus just didn't look right. Even Isaiah in that famous 53rd chapter, said, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. I mean, think about it. Jesus was not handsome. He was not good-looking. He was not rich. In fact, he was poor. He wasn't educated in the schools of his day. His closest closest disciples were all just ordinary, common, garden-variety people, right? His friends were the sinners of the day, and he died on a cross, the most humiliating form of execution reserved for the lowliest kinds of criminals, There's one author, Dr. William Lane Craig, who addresses the perplexing question of why Jesus was rejected by his people despite his great works of healing and miracles and even raising people from the dead. Why didn't more people accept him? And Dr. Lane's conclusion is this, because the world couldn't penetrate the veil of ordinariness that surrounded him. And guess what? It's the same thing today. Most people have no idea of the exquisite value and the magnificence and the beauty of Jesus. They hardly even give him a thought. But surprise, God hides spiritual treasure in unexpected, ordinary-appearing messiahs. He hid it in Jesus. And here's the promise. Here's the promise. If we will be diligent in spending time in God's word with open hearts, then we will find Jesus, and he will become for us the wisdom of God. He will become our treasure and very precious. No sacrifice will be too great. No task will... Too difficult compared to the joy of knowing Him. As Ellen White has written, and this is in your bulletins this morning no one can search the Scriptures in the Spirit of Jesus without being rewarded. No one. Not you, not me, not anybody here. We will be rewarded, we will find the treasure. So that's it, kingdom of heaven, like a treasure, buried in a field, just waiting to be discovered, maybe even hoping to be discovered. And when it is, it will be life-transforming. I hope you will find it. Let's stand and sing our closing song about the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. Tell Out My Soul, number 31.